Our scripture for the sermon this morning is Exodus 26, 1 through 37. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain 4 cubits. The 11 curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple 5 curtains by themselves, and 6 curtains by themselves, and the 6th curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze, and put the clasps in the lo- into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle. And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle. Twenty frames for the south side, and forty bases of silver. You shall make under the twenty frames two bases under one frame for its two tenons and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons, and for the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, 20 frames, and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. And for the rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames, and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them, they shall form the two corners." And there, there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame, and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar, halfway up the frames, shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold, and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars, and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. 
and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lamp stand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Now please take out paper and pencil for a quiz. It's not a, not a bad idea actually. Well, some of you are history buffs. Uh, you love historical novels, movies, relics, museums. You enjoy seeing how things in the past got our world to the place we are at today. And many of you have your kind of your niche, niche, I'll say that wrong, niche eras of history. Your favorite time. So some of you really enjoy the Civil War. Looking at you, Kevin, right? If you ever have a question, talk to Kevin. Uh, you love seeing how the, the various generals and leaders strategize to either split or preserve the Union of the United States. Uh, others of you like crossing the ocean and going back further and studying maybe Europe during things like the Roman Empire or the explo exploits of Napoleon or, or the Protestant Reformation. Others of you want to kind of get more recent than the Civil War, and you want to kind of look at to the building, the political buildup, and then the fallout and aftermath of the First and Second World Wars. That's cool. Well, do you realize that the Bible is a historical book? It's a, not a book of legend or myth. It's a book rooted in real-time history. And at its heart, it, the Bible is a unified story of the history of redemption, the history of God's saving plan for his people. And in this history, just like the histories we just recounted, there are different eras, different epochs, so that as we study the later portions of Scripture, we see how we got there when we go back to the earlier portions. We've been working through the book of Exodus over what, the last year and a half or so, off and on. And this book is in the Old Testament of the Bible. And we've sort of been rooting our study of God's word in this book and therefore in a certain era of redemptive history. The era of the Mosaic Covenant. The covenant between God and Moses and, by extension, Israel. So we've seen Israel enslaved in Egypt. We've seen them brought out by God, or, or remember Yahweh, that personal name for God that's so pivotal to the book of Exodus. God has, Yahweh has, has delivered them with a mighty hand, and now, though it may not seem like it, we've reached the whole reason for the Exodus. It's not the Red Sea. It's not manna. The whole reason for the deliverance of Israel from 
Slavery is covenant. Yahweh has brought them out to make them his own people, to establish a covenant relationship with them. And all of this, again, though it might not seem like it, now comes to a head in these very chapters. As the covenant agreement is made, and Yahweh begins setting up his home, his palace with his people, setting up his place with Israel. All throughout the Bible, just like in history, we can see themes that thread through history. One of the greatest themes throughout the the history of redemption documented in the Bible is this theme of God's place with his people. His loving presence dwelling in their midst. It's one of the storylines that holds history together. Not just the history of redemption, but the history of the cosmos, which is the history of redemption. And so today in the passage Ashley just read so well for us, let's kind of put on our history hats a little bit and sort of use this chapter to launch us up to kind of get the lay of the land of the Bible, the arc of history, and where this chapter fits in. Uh, There are many good ways that scholars and, and godly people have decided to sort of outline the history of redemption, but one of the classics is four headings, creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. Those are our four points this morning. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So first, creation. So in the very beginning of the history of this world, we also see the very earliest events, or or somewhat earliest events, in the history of redemption. God creates the heavens and the earth. And like we said in the prayer petition earlier, like I prayed, he doesn't do this because he's needy or lonely. Remember, we said we don't praise him because it benefits him. Anything we give him is actually already his anyway. And the same is true with the creation of the heavens and the earth. He doesn't create us because he's needy. From eternity past, he has dwelt in relationship within the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and within that relationship with perfect love and harmony. But in his grace that that always overflows, God chose to create a world, a universe, a people to share in his glory, to share in his joy. So that's why the world was created. We are intended, the world is created, everything, animals, trees are created and intended to glorify God. This is what the world is meant to do, what we are designed to do. I love this quote that I've shared with some of you from C.S. Lewis. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Lewis is pointing out that God has designed us for a specific reason. And here's where we begin to see in the Bible this theme of place, of God's dwelling place. 
Because, sure, God is everywhere, right? We all understand that. He is spirit. You can't hide from him. That's what the psalmist says in Psalm 139. Where can I go where I can get away from you? Nowhere. But what we're talking about with this theme of God's place is his special, covenantal, merciful dwelling place, his specific place of peaceful relationship and presence with his people. And get this, from the very beginning, the earth itself was that. The earth was set up as a sort of tent for God's glory to dwell in. He created men and women in his image to dwell in that tent with him, to glorify him. Psalm 104, the psalmist talks to Yahweh. He says, you are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. God created the world to be his dwelling place, the place where his glory was perfectly revealed and glorified. And at the beginning, it was all great. He created everything, and he said, it's so good. His glory was being displayed in everything he had made, and, and the place where this glory was found at its epicenter was Eden, the garden. There, God dwelled with Adam. He made Adam a partner named Eve. There was just this harmony and peace and fellowship between God and his creation. There was a picture of the fellowship that existed from eternity past in the Trinity. See, fellowship with God is not just for religious types, for people who like thinking about spirituality. It's part of being human. When we're at peace with God, when he dwells with us, we are most human. We are most fulfilling what we were created to do. But this then takes us to the second heading in the history of redemption, the fall. See, Eden was not to last. So Adam was placed in the garden on sort of a, a, a testing basis. He was innocent. He was able not to sin. He was able to walk with God. But he was being tested. God gave him one command, don't eat of that tree. And when Adam disobeyed, you read that in Genesis chapter 3, the result was tragic. Here's how the end of chapter 3 goes. God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Man was separated from fellowship with God. Man was separated from God's unique place. Eden's bliss was left behind. They were shut out, cast out from the place of God's peace. The Lord was no longer present like he was before. Innocence was lost, broken by sin. So during that testing period, Adam was able not to sin. But after sin entered the world, Adam found that he was not able not to sin. Every action of his heart was anti-God. What he had thought would be this road to freedom, to godlikeness, eating of the tree, was actually the road to slavery. Isn't that always the way the devil lies to us? 
the design of mankind was distorted and perverted. And Adam found his heart to be much like we find our hearts to be in our sin, right? Wanting to be our own gods, hating God's rule over us. In in the New Hampshire Baptist Confession of Faith that we use as our statement of faith here at Loudoun Valley, in in the article on the fall, we read, we are all positively inclined to evil. That means no one is neutral with God. That we are all his enemies and we like it that way. That we have rejected the fuel we were made to run on, the purpose we were meant to live for. That we have separated ourselves from God's place. And so we read at the end of Genesis 3 that God banished Adam and Eve from his place. Cast them out. Lest they live forever in rejection of him. He cast them out so they would not eat of the tree of life in their sin. He cast them out so there would still be a way for him to show mercy. He cast them out because of his justice, holiness, and grace. And he set a guard to make sure they would not enter it again. On the east side of Eden, he set a cherubim, an angel, with a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. And so together with Adam and Eve, we live east of Eden. Cast out, unable to return, forever banished. Creation, fall, but then redemption. This is where we'll spend most of our time. See, the era of redemption in the history of God's plan began almost immediately. God promised Adam and Eve, even as he cursed them, that he would send someone to save. And in the centuries following, he sort of started to gradually unveil that history, that covenant plan of grace, promising Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob great things to come. And then we get to Exodus. And Moses, this weak shepherd, is called. And Israel is delivered. And God gives them his law to show them their sin and their need to be with him. While also reminding them that they can't. They cannot approach his presence without sacrifice. We'll see that more next week. Yahweh establishes a covenant with Israel in Exodus 20 and following. And and as we're seeing now, he provides a way, now that that covenant has been confirmed and ratified, we saw that in chapter 24, he has now provided a way for the king to dwell with them, to allow Yahweh to draw near, though not quite as near as Eden had been. Through sacrifice, through condescending grace, Yahweh is coming close. So Ashley read for the, us these sort of intricate instructions, right, on how to make this house, this kind of tent palace for Yahweh. So look there at Exodus 26, and we'll just kind of uh, hit the, the high points and get a sense of what this is. And, and for real, like, if you want to, you know, really dig in and kind of, kind of sketch this thing, you will end up confused and benefited. So the first six verses... We see a curtain made that will drape over the tabernacle. So it's going to be woven with linen and yarns. 
Uh, Images of cherubim will be designed on it. In verses 7 through 14, we see several more layers added to that, kind of draped over the tabernacle. And then in verses 15 through 25, we see how those curtains are going to be held up. There's going to be frames, right? Wooden frames made of acacia wood, fitting on bases that will hold them up. The frames will be overlaid with gold. Their bases will be of silver. In verses 26 through 30, then bars will be made to kind of like reinforce the frames, to hold them together, to provide support. There in verse 30, Yahweh says, You shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. So remember, even in these details, he's making it clear that this tabernacle, and that's part of the reason for these intricate details, will be a mini Sinai, a mini heavenly throne room for God, a a portable kingly palace for him to dwell in amidst his people. Can you see a little bit about how huge this is? This is the pinnacle of what Exodus, what the covenant is meant to do. It's supposed to bring God and his people together. I am your God. You will be my people. But there is still separation, right? Verses 31 to 35, a veil is to be made. We'll look at this more next week. A veil is to be made to separate the interior of the tabernacle into kind of two separate rooms. One called the holy place, the other the most holy place. The holy place will contain the the lampstand and the table for the bread of the presence. This is the, the room that the priests will frequent on a daily basis. But the most holy place will be where the throne of God is that we saw last week, the Ark of the Covenant. And that will be strictly off limits, except for one day a year when the high priest makes atonement for the sins of his people. Finally, at the end of chapter 26, a screen is made for the entrance to the tabernacle, and that's that's it. We'll get more instructions on the furniture of the tabernacle in chapter 27, the, the, court, the, the courtyard outside the tabernacle, but as far as God's house, that's it. The dwelling place of God will be both splendid and small. Both kind of spectacular and gold and silver and bronze, and yet basically about the size of a trailer home. God is condescending to dwell amidst his people, his weak people. His sinful people. But notice what this tabernacle is really trying to picture. What are going to be embroidered on its curtains, on its walls? Cherubim. Angels guarding it. In verse 18 of chapter 26, we see that one of the sides will be on the south. And in verse 20, the other side will be on the north, and then the rear of the tabernacle will be towards the west, verse 22. And so all of that leads us, by process of deduction, to realize that the entrance will be from the east. The tabernacle is Eden, repictured. Israel is east of Eden, cast out. And the cherubim here are reminding them that there's still a cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way to the place of God. There's still a fractured relationship between God and man. There's still the inability to walk into his place, his special presence from the east without blood being shed. 
But at the same time, God is condescending to be among them. They're invited in from the east, at least part way, by covenant and, and sacrifice. I keep saying that God condescends, and I, that word is kind of a bad word for us, isn't it? So when we say somebody is condescending, it's hardly ever used in a positive light. When we say that, we mean that they're sort of acting higher than us in an unfair way and pretending to sort of stoop down to our level. That they're snobby, that they're arrogant. They're acting like somebody they're really not. Except when God's condescending. When God is condescending, it's not obnoxious, it's grace. We call condescending people holier than thou's, but God is holier than thou. And yet he stoops down to our level in covenant love and mercy and inhabits a small tent. Christian, these chapters are full of intricate complexity. I, like I said before, I tried to sketch this out. It took me a while, and I, I still had parts where I was like, well, where did that cubit go, you know? And it's not really the most riveting reading. But what this chapter is describing is world-changing. This is the pinnacle, the high point, the climax of God's covenant grace in all of Exodus. He's building a place amidst his people. He's inviting them in by blood and sacrifice and covenant to somehow partially enter Eden again, to come in from the east to his place. They had been ex- Adam and Eve had been expelled, and yet Israel, by God's grace, is being slowly invited back in. It's more than probable that even that lampstand, we m- mentioned this last week, is meant to picture the tree of life that's being guarded as it's decorated with leaves and flowers carved into it. God's place is with man. Later in the Old Testament, the tabernacle is replaced by a temple built by Solomon, built even more grandly and majestically. But throughout Israel's history, post-Egypt, this is the reminder that God is with them. And yet all of that points to something greater, right? Megan read it for us earlier. In John chapter 1, the apostle John says, And the word, meaning Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelling can mean, as one great Greek scholar puts it, that the word pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. John is saying literally that the word, that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled with us. God with us. Emmanuel, God's place with his people, God himself with us in human form. Jesus is the fulfillment of everything Exodus 26 pictures. A history of redemption that spans the whole Bible comes to a glorious crescendo in him. Exodus has everything to do with Jesus. The Bible is one story. It's, it's one unified history. 
Jesus, the better Adam, comes, undergoes a time of testing like Adam did, does not fail, and yet takes the punishment of that failure on Adam, from Adam and all his offspring on himself. Jesus doesn't come to unleash God's holy wrath on us. He comes to have God's holy wrath unleashed on him for us. On the cross, Jesus took our sin and he opened up a way for us to come back to God's place. To be in perfect fellowship with him. If you're here this morning, you don't understand yourself to be a Christian This is teaching you that you are designed to be in God's place. That you're made to be with him. That your fuel and your meaning and your purpose in life is to glorify and praise and live for God, not yourself. And I I think, I say this humbly, but I think you already know that. I think you already know that life is much bigger than you. That you have this hunger for greater things. And I would wager that you probably haven't found that yet. You have great things, but they've broken down. Your search will only come to rest when you find it in Christ. As Augustine said, our hearts will only find rest when they find rest in God. And Jesus has come to restore that relationship to us. So if you repent of your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. And and Christian, what's amazing is that you and I are now God's place. The place of his special presence on earth, in Northern Virginia, in the United States, on the globe. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul asks the rhetorical question, Do you not know, speaking to the church, that you are God's temple? tabernacle that God's spirit dwells in you the the church is the tabernacle now the church is God's temple made up of people indwelt by his spirit so when we came in this morning we were walking in like little tabernacles isn't that incredible what grace that God's glory can inhabit weak containers like you and me and yet through the grace of the cross he does just that So Christian, do you live like God dwells in you? Do you walk and talk and and fellowship with him, knowing he's close, whether you feel it or not? Do you take advantage of that proximity? Do you live in private and public like you represent God's presence to the world, in the world? Like he's with you. Like he knows what you're doing and what you're thinking. The church is God's presence on earth. You know, this room is just a regular high school auditorium Monday through Saturday. But on Sundays from 10.30 to 12, it's a sanctuary. Not because God is somehow not here during the week. He certainly is. But because on Sundays when we gather, his dwelling place is especially here because we're here. He is in our midst even now, church, in a unique 
covenant-keeping, grace-filled way. We are his temple, his dwelling place, his sanctuary. Do you see why Jesus loves the church? Why the church is key to his plan, why the church is key to history, why we come together, why it's a big deal to just skip church because you want to skip church, because you don't feel like it, why we worship with joy and awe. Creation, fall, redemption, finally, restoration. It's not over yet, folks, as we saw earlier in Ezekiel in our service. So in John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, if I go, so he's about to to leave to die for their sins, and he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So this history of redemption documented in the Bible never comes to an end, but it does have a conclusion never comes to an end, but it does have a conclusion. See, the tabernacle was fulfilled in Christ, but Jesus' plan to bring us to himself is not yet fully completed. It's still to come. It's going to happen when he returns, when he makes a new heavens and a new earth that Ezekiel saw in the future. A, a perfect temple where he will dwell with us forever, where he will be our God and we will be his people forevermore where no cherubim will be there with flaming sword to force us out, but instead to welcome us in, where fellowship will be sweet and fellowship will be eternal, never failing, never fading. History will come to this grand conclusion and then last forever. In Revelation chapter 21, we read, And I, that's John the Apostle speaking, heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That will be the never-ending conclusion of the history of God's redemption. That's going to end up being our favorite era. Restoring creation, restoring his people to full fellowship with him to what we were made to do. In that new creation, God will dwell with us. We will forever live in what the tabernacle only hinted at. The pastor and author, Tony Maria, says it like this. He says, in that place, God's dwelling place will not just be overlaid with gold, but will be made of pure solid gold. We will not need a lampstand or the sun, for God will be the city's light. And church, that gets me excited. The overarching history of redemption makes the Bible alive again. And this history is true. And the story all holds together. And you know what? You're in it. And you're in it. I'm in it. 
The Exodus 26 can seem so distant, so far, and even legend-like to us, and we hop in on it every couple years, but it's not. Exodus was before intermission, and we're after, but it's the same concert. Exodus was part one, and we're in part two, but it's the same story. The drama continues to unfold, and we are characters playing our role in it. So I wonder, Christian, do you ever feel hopeless or meaningless in your life? Does your life sometimes feel like it just doesn't have a point? Do you yearn for something bigger than what you have? Bigger than even the brief timeline of your existence on this planet? We all do. And it's right here. You're in God's story. You're in the story of all creation. It's the history of the world. It's the history of God's redemption, and you're part of it. You're involved in the greatest, hugest, most magnificent plan ever. So as we leave this morning, remember, your life is not in a vacuum. There's a context. You're part of God's history, and that history will never end. So find your meaning, not in the high points of your life only, but in the high points of this history of which you're a part. In that, find meaning. In that, find confidence. In that, find your hope. Let's pray. Lord, your word is just so rich. And as we kind of navigate the themes of the history of redemption, our breath is taken away. So we ask that you keep us short of breath. Lord, as we see your mercy, we confess that sometimes it just seems like, yeah, we know that. Lord, help us to see the amazing mercy of the tabernacle, the word incarnate, the church, and the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, as we come to sing to you now, of this word who took on flesh and tabernacled among us, we pray that you'd help fix our eyes on Christ. We'd look forward to the day when he returns. In the meantime, as we share the Lord's Supper, that you would help us to remember to be faithful, to represent you as your temple on earth, honestly and boldly, as we wait for you to come back. In the name of Christ, amen.